Our reading today is from the book of Malachi, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of God. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. We'll continue on to the next page, um, uh, chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Christina. Thank you. Thank you for reading. And uh, we're starting the book of Malachi uh, this morning, whether you're familiar with it or not. But um, it's a terrific read. Uh, let's pray together as we begin. If we're not met, my name's Matt. We'd love you to do so afterwards. But uh, let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Uh, Father, if there's any honesty within us, we know that there's an enormous gap between how you think and how we think and how we need your words to shake us out of our apathy, shake us out of our self-deception and see what is true, see what is right, to think your thoughts after you. Father, please, would you be at work doing that so that we know that you love us? In Jesus' name, amen. 
These first five verses of Malachi. Does God care? That's the cry that goes up from many of us, I guess, at times when things go wrong. Does God care? When financially things are pretty grim and then there's just illness on top and you think, what is that? Does God care? Well, actually, where you're going to live is completely uncertain and your landlord kicks you out and you think, well, God, where are you? Do you not care? Well, this week I've been praying for a young couple in their 30s now, they've been trying for children for uh, five years with much pain and anguish. And wonderfully, they conceived, and actually the, their firstborn was arrived this week. And the doctor said, this child has got about 24 hours to live. And where is God? And don't you care? I can't sing of your love for me. Not when that takes place. I love you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you done that? It does not feel that way. Where are we? We're starting to look then at the book of Malachi for, from now on for the next uh, five weeks, I think. And um, uh, if you know nothing else, you could probably have worked out it's the last book of the Old Testament. But to be good to orientate ourselves in history, a little bit biblical history, I don't know if we've got a little uh, graphic uh, to help us in that. So if you were here, last year we were in the book of 1 Kings and we just saw in 922 BC the kingdom splits Israel. Oh, it's going too fast for me. Um, let's go back to the... So about 922, the kingdom splits, and uh, let's go, look at that, it's very clever. Uh, And um, you get 10 tribes go off, and Israel in the north, and two tribes remain, and Judah in the south. And that's when you get the first prophets, Um, what, in the 8th century? So the big one in Judah in the south is Isaiah, and he's condemning them, I guess, initially, first of all, for their idolatry. And in the north, Hosea and uh, Amos preaching within 10 years of one another. Uh, And again, they're condemning the people for their idolatry. They're not following the Lord. They're chasing after other gods. It's the big cry of these books. Why do you follow idols? Idols, idols. Why do you chase after other gods, uh, unlike me, who aren't real gods? Uh, And then you get, okay, let's let's see if we can keep up with it now. Uh, Jeremiah, also a little bit later. 722. Uh, Israel is, uh, let's pause, uh, 722, the, um, uh, brilliant, well done, um, uh, so the northern kingdom, it's my fault, isn't it, the, uh, the northern kingdom in 722, they get destroyed, the Assyrian armies come in, rage them, and, and that's it, they're gone and, and, and done away with. Yeah, uh, years later, uh, 587 BC, well it starts a little bit earlier than that, probably a decade earlier, but really in 587 BC, Jerusalem is finally <laughs> wiped out and destroyed, and all the Israelites are taken to Babylon, captured uh, by the Babylonian army. Your big prophet around the time, of course, is Ezekiel. For, for, for today, we'll need to know, the, ooh, not yet, uh, the Edomites, um, they also fought against Israel, and we'll come back to that, because that's really important. When Israel was destroyed in 587, the Edomites, another little bitty tin pot nation, but they fought against them as well, very unreasonable. Now, we move on in Bible history, and then by about 538 BC, let's go. Uh, ooh, look at that. The um, uh, uh, new superpower, the Persians are in charge. Cyrus the Persian allows the Jews to return to Jerusalem. 
uh, at about 538 BC. And now we're at the end of the Minor Prophets. And the three that are known as the post-exilic prophets, posh word, isn't it? In other words, Judah, they're unfaithful to the Lord. He allows them to be destroyed by Babylon and they're taken into exile because they've been chasing after other gods. They've been involved in idolatry. But after the exile, they come back. They're in Jerusalem again. And the three prophets are around then, Haggai, Zechariah, and Amman for the next month or so. Malachi. About about 516 BC, the temple gets rebuilt. That's good. But the city is completely still in ruins. Ezra arrives, 458 BC. Nehemiah arrives, 444 BC. And the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt. And around about this time is Malachi preaching. Has that been of help? A little bit. A little bit. So Malachi is preaching around 450 BC. uh, At the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah are on the scene in Jerusalem rebuilding the walls. They've got a temple. That's good. They've had a temple rebuilt for 60-odd years, but the city is still a bit of a mess. It's an Aleppo. Walls destroyed. Nothing properly rebuilt. That's where we are in, uh, in the Bible's history. Uh, thanks for that. Now, the issue in Malachi is not that they're, uh, they're chasing after idols. That's done and dusted. That, that was all Isaiah's day, Hosea's day, that sort of thing, and, and God judged them for that. The issue in Malachi is their religion is a bit meh. It's just all a bit half-hearted. They're not running away from the Lord. They're not turning their back on him and chasing after other gods. But they're not really passionately following him either. It's just all tepid. They've got a little self-made, tailor-made godlet. It's kind of there, but doesn't really interfere with how they're living their lives. The problem in Malachi is that people are serving the Lord-ish. It's all very half-hearted and apathetic. The book is largely six speeches. Um, uh, God makes an assertion. You get the introduction, chapter 1, verse 1, and you get a conclusion, uh, really chapter 4. But most of it is six speeches. God makes a statement. The people say, you are joking. Uh, And he says, no, let me explain. Six times uh, you get that. So we've had a a few of them read today. So you get it here, chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how on earth have you done that? And the Lord responds. Uh, we'll see it. Let me just run you through the others. So uh, uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 6, end of verse 6. You priests, you show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we done that? And the Lord will tell them. Uh, chapter 2, verse 10 downwards is uh, another one, another issue. Uh, the, the, the why question comes in the middle. You ask... Why, chapter 2, verse 14. Or here you get another one, uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 17. Uh, God says to them, you have wearied me, the Lord, with your words. How have we done that? What is your problem? Oh, well, you say that evil is good and good is evil. And then we had another couple read. Um, uh, chapter 3, verse 8. You're robbing me, says the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 8, the people say, oh, for goodness sake. What are you talking about? How are we robbing you? Well, let me explain, says the Lord. Uh, And the last one is cynicism, I guess. Chapter 3, verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? Verse 14. It's futile to serve God. So here are Christians. Let's let's not call them that. They're not this wrong, wrong period, I guess. But here are believers. They're just 
not bothered, really. They're not bothered about living godly lives. They're not bothered about serving the money, with, serving the Lord with their money. They say, but what's the point in serving you? It doesn't seem to do us any good. So look, God, let's just make a deal. You leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. We'll sort of rumble on and pretend it's okay. We'll just have one of those marriages, yeah, where um, we're, we're still in the same house, but we're in separate bedrooms, and we barely grunt at one another, uh, but we, we don't make a big fuss. But we, there's nothing going on. It's a sham. It's half-hearted. So here are people, they're not denying the faith, but they're just going through the motions. And it's deeply offensive to the Lord. So all sorts of problems in around 450 BC. But where do they begin? They begin chapter 1, 1 to 5, because they doubt that God loves them. And so before we get onto the detail of how you're conducting worship and how you're behaving and how you're using your money and your cynical chatter, before we get onto them, do you know what the problem behind them all is? You're just doubting my love for you. And if you get that clear, then other things can start to fall into place. So pretty simple, how we're going to look at it this morning. Uh, two things to say. They doubted God's love, but God had chosen to love. Very simple. Okay. Just five verses. How, how good can that be? Chapter 1, verse 1. Let's jump into the text. Chapter 1, verse 1. A prophecy, or an oracle, a burden, literally. The word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. means my messenger. I take it it is his name. It's just given a good name. My messenger. Okay. What is the problem going on here? The Lord makes a statement then. Chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, that's not a past tense. It's just not grammatically how it works. It has an ongoing sense. I guess you could translate it equally well. I've always loved you, says the Lord. I have loved you in the past. I still keep on loving you. I have always loved you, says the Lord. And the people say, how? And here it is the petulant cry of the teenager. There, I put it in those terms. Why do you hate me so much? What are you talking about? You won't let me go to that party. Why do you hate me so much? Um, Well, we love you. You hate me. You're making me do this essay. You're making me say I can't go to the party. You won't let me play on the computer at 3 a.m. in the morning. Why do you hate me so much? It's that sort of... Petulant cry. What are you talking about? And of course the parent could list through things. Well, we have changed the odd nappy worth of poo for you and brought you up and fed you and clothed you. And Now you hate me. Okay, okay, okay. It's that sort of petulance. Now I, I just, this is a tangent, but uh, this is different from the Psalms. Quite often there are cries in the Psalms, how long, Lord? Why, Lord? Why me, Lord? But they are generally cries of faith. Generally the Psalms are, you have loved us in the past, but what's going on today? This is, oh, questioning everything. The Psalms are generally, you have loved me. Father, I'm, I'm confused. What's going on, Father? They're prayers of faith. Here it's more, I have an official complaint to make. What is your problem? 
you see, there's, there's a difference. There is a very much a place in the Bible for asking questions. But to God as, as a father, these are complaints. And what you can see, you can see in where they are in Bible history, the sort of things they might be saying. God says, I've loved you. And they say, seriously, look around. Would you look around? We look, our city is just is ruins. What is this? All right, we've got a temple, but if you read the book of Ezra, when the temple gets rebuilt, the elders all just cry because it's a pathetic, pathetic little temple compared to the glories of the past. Yeah, in the past you loved us, God, but the cry of this verse here is, what have you done for us lately? Yeah, we know in the past you loved us, but now, look around. We are nothing and we're being mocked by every nation around us. How can you say that you love us? Where is your love for us? Now that I don't think is particularly hard to relate to. It's a corporate cry here, not an individual one. I mean, corporately you may cry, Lord, don't don't you care about your church in the UK. I mean, in the past, there's some good times, revivals and, and influence, you know, and God, you know, Christians used to sort of be at the forefront of shaping legislation and it was wonderful. But now, yeah, back then was good, but now, where is your love? Where is your concern? Don't you care for a land such as this? Personally, of course, we ask it too. If you're a Christian, you can, it's quite possible to ask or, or to put it in terms of, yeah, okay, I'm a Christian, that's good. I'm pleased that you saved me in Jesus Christ for heaven. But don't you care now? Lord, what about my life now? That was bad, that made me miserable, and then that happened as well. How can... It's vacuous for me to sing of your love because I don't see it. I don't feel it. I don't know it in any sense. Look, I'm not going to throw in the faith because I I do want to go to heaven. But don't ask too much of me, Lord. I can't see that you care. So don't you ask me to be wholehearted and give my life for you. It's just truck along mildly together. The two slightly striking aspects of, of the problem in Malachi 1, it seems to me, uh, one, beyond what my, some of us may do, this is not just negative thinking. They do vocalize it and things become a little bit worse. Sometimes we have unworthy thoughts running through our heads. We think, well, I probably shouldn't think that. But anyway, that is how I think. But as soon as you vocalize it, uh, it's becoming a bit more rebellious, I guess you'd say. But I think the most striking thing is the plural nature of it. English doesn't always pick these things up, of course. But verse 2, you ask, plural, second person plural, how have you loved us, second person plural? You. So in other words, here, there's a, um, a contagion of cynicism has spread through the people. People moan, and others join on the bandwagon. 
Do you ever want, God doesn't really care for us, does he? Not when our nation's like this. No, you're right. I think you're right. You, you plural, complain. When you read through the book, all the challenges that people make, uh, how have you loved us, Lord? What's wrong with our worship? Well, how on earth are we encouraging evil? What's the point in serving you? Clearly in, in this time, it's socially acceptable amongst believers to whinge and complain. It's just normal. It's what takes place. And when that sort of complaining is unmet, you have got a problem. Uh, this week in the media, of course, hoo-ha, uh, because um, three eminent judges said, no, Mrs. May and your government, you can't just push through uh, Article 50, you can't just take us out of Europe, there needs to be a vote in Parliament, Parliament is sovereign, and what an extraordinary response. Three blokes seemingly just doing their job. Uh, and of course, the newspapers went nuts. You know, so enemies of the people. Who are these three? One of them was, you know, voted something, something, you know, and they'd sort of try and dredge up everything from their past. One of them was an Olympic rower or something. was one of the, I don't know, neither here, fencer, fencer, neither here nor there. You know, all these things. So outrage, outrage, outrage as, these, as the judiciary gets attacked for thwarting the will of the people. And then, of course, the whole legal profession says, excuse me, can someone say that that's wrong, please? Because if all those cries just get chucked out into the public domain, judges, bad, awful judges. If all those things are just chucked out into the public domain, what does that do? It completely undermines a judiciary. It undermines your legal system. Can you please, government, say, stop that? Actually, it is a legal decision. There's no political point to make here. The, um, and eventually, a sort of muted response comes out from the government. You, you probably ought to. It's probably not right, really. But of course, if you just allow that cynicism, that anger, to be unmet, people go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, that's right, isn't it?" Judges, they are all bad. They all wear wigs. What's all that about? You know, wiggy people. We don't like them. And you know, and on it, on it goes. And it's, um, you know, we never trust a judge. And the next time a criminal appears in court, well, why should I listen to you? The government doesn't listen to you. And you've got to meet that sort of cynicism. Otherwise, it spreads. It's different here, of course. Here it's complaining. But there's a, clearly a contagion of complaining amongst the people that's just not met. And so moaning spreads. It's just one thing to watch out for, I guess, amongst a congregation. Boating spreads, unless someone says, no, you shouldn't say that, don't do that. I know of um, uh, one minister, a uh, senior guy, he's a bit naughty, but uh, he always manages to do this. If he's with some people and uh, there's a bit of moaning going on, moaning about church or moaning about just the stuff of life, he, with an enormous smile on his face to confuse them, uh, says, oh, do watch out, you're not bitten by a snake. What? Sort of general confusion. Well, well you know, in, 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 uh, in the wilderness, in Numbers 20, all the people complained and God sent a plague of snake because they were moaning so much and they, they were bitten and died because they were moaning too much. So uh, don't moan too much or you might get bitten by a snake <laughs> and then walks off. <laughs> and of course, it leaves people slightly unsettled. Was he Joe? What? Was he telling me off? Or was he... Oh... Yes, he was telling them off. He was, this is what he's doing. But there was a big smile on his face, so he sort of gets away with it. Um, and what's his point? His point is actually, it is 
don't just generally allow that level of moaning. And it's a, you've got to be careful how you do such a thing, of course. You've got to be gentle with people. But whenever in, the, in any group within a church, there's just a level of moaning, complaining, general low-level whinging. I don't know, it could be something at church. could just be the stuff of life. And no one steps in and says, but hold on, God is good. You have got many things to give thanks for, haven't you? If no one steps in and says that, there's a contagion of complaining that spreads. It's not healthy. I don't think we're going to get invaded by a plague of snakes. I think that was a pretty unique experience in church history. But clearly it had spread here. There's a problem. If moaning is left unchanged or even encouraged, complaining, does God care? Well, I, you know, he doesn't care, does he? No one steps in and says anything. There's a problem. There's a problem here amongst the people of Israel. And it meant that they doubted God's love. What's God's response? Second thing. His response is he tells them he had chosen to love. Okay, second thing then. God had chosen to love. Verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? How do you expect God to answer that question? That's a bit naughty, of course, because we've, uh, we know the answer. This is not a good game uh, to play this one. But I guess in one sense, you'd expect something along the lines of, well, something along the lines of Psalm 136, which we had read. You know, God, I've created everything, and look what I've done for you, Israel, in the past. You were in slavery in Egypt, and I took you out, and I parted the Red Sea, and I sent all the plagues and the miracles, and you were delivered, and I led you through the wilderness, and I put you in a good land, and I provided a way for you to always be forgiven through the atonement system. I've done so much for you. Doesn't say any of that. Probably not the response that you and I would have chosen for God to make. How have you loved us, say the people? God's response was not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated and have turned his hill country into a wasteland. Ah, now we all feel so much better. What response? Essentially, God's response to them is... I chose to love you. And I never changed my mind. His response is, I guess you'd say, the doctrine of election. God goes back into history to the events of Genesis chapter 25. Rebecca and Isaac, mum and dad. Rebecca has her twins in the womb, Jacob and Esau. And before they're born... God says, I will love Jacob and not Esau. Don't get thrown by the language of love and hate too much. Often uh, in Hebrew, that's a sort of way of demonstrating preference. Uh, I prefer one to the other. Jesus could use that language. He could say, you must follow the Ten Commandments. You must honor your parents. But also he'll say, uh, if you follow after me, you must love me and hate your parents. Well, how do those two fit together, Jesus? Honor your parents. He's just saying, you must have me first, is what he means. It's a preference system. But in Genesis 25, while these twins were still in the womb, they hadn't done anything right, done anything wrong. God says, I chose Jacob, who became the nation of Israel. And I did not choose Esau, whose descendants became the nation of Edom. I chose to love Jacob, Israel, 
you, his descendants. That never changes. But hold on, but why did you love them, Lord? Well, I love them because I love them because I love them. But why? What was it about Jacob and his descendants that was so special? Nothing. So the people asked that of Moses. And uh, he tells them, um, we've got it, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, very simply. Moses tells the people, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. You were the fewest of all peoples. He loved you because he loved you. Nothing was impressive about you at all. Nothing's deserving about Jacob. He and Esau are despicable characters. As you read through Genesis 25 to 35, they're both horrible. They're horrible characters. There's nothing good about either of them. But God chooses to love one, not the other. His love is a choice despite behavior, not because of it. And that is still the case today. That God chooses to love Individuals, so they become Christians today. It's a love in spite of our behavior, not because of it. So Paul makes the same point in uh, Romans chapter 9, again with Jacob and Esau. Paul can write, Before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, Rebecca, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And Paul says, well, of course, naturally people go, what? How is that fair? God chooses to love one and not the other. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. Every single human who's ever been born by Jesus Christ rejects God, ignores God in different ways, mistreats others, And deserves rejection from him. But God in his kindness chooses to have mercy upon some. He chooses to love some. And so the point here in Malachi 1 is, I have loved you. I chose to love you. It is a love in spite of your behavior, not because you're deserving. And it never changes. I will always love you. I've never stopped loving you. I can never stop loving you. I've promised your love. I'm not at the whim of my emotions. I'm not at the whim of your behavior, says the Lord. I will love you. It doesn't change. I have one friend uh, I grew up with from primary school and uh, still in touch. And um, she was one of three children. And her mother was a bit of a tyrant. Uh, She would say that herself, the mother. Uh, I am a tyrant in my own household, odd thing. But anyway, at least there's some self-awareness. She she was a tyrant. So growing up, uh, she was an over-domineering mother. And uh, now she's in her 80s and a very wealthy woman, uh, worth, you know, happily, happily, happily seven figures, uh, multi-times over. And uh, she tries to keep her children in line, even though they're all now in their 40s, by saying, if you do that, I will cut you out of my will. Uh, If you, look, my husband, your father decorated that lounge 20 years ago. I like it. If you redecorate that lounge, I'll cut you out of my will. Slightly odd and and quirky behavior. Uh, Now, this has gone on for decades now. And so the three children just sort of laugh about it because they know that at any one stage for the last 25, 30 years, one of them has been out of the will, 
or sometimes two of them out of the will. And uh, they said, joke about it, the, the, the lawyers must love our mother. Every three to six months, she goes and rewrites her will, takes someone out, puts someone back in. And uh, I saw her fairly recently, about a month ago, I said, oh, just jokingly, who's in or out at the moment? This is everyone. She says, well, would you believe it? We're all out at the moment. All three of us are out, and the money goes all to the grandchildren. But not to worry, you know, we'll see what happens next week. Um, there is a woman who's completely the women whose love ebbs and flows and, and God says, no, no. I chose to love you. No matter what you do, I will love you. You cannot lose my love. I have promised to love you and I will always do so. So here in Malachi 1, look, you know your history, don't you? I chose to love you, Jacob, nation of Israel, and not Esau, nation of Edom. And therefore, oh yeah, all the way back in 587, you were destroyed. And Edom helped the Babylonians. But five years later, 552, Edom was destroyed. You read about that in the book of Obadiah. And Edom is gone. But I've always loved you, so I've brought you back. I've given you your land again. The walls are being rebuilt. And beyond that, verse 5 of chapter 1, your future is extraordinary. Our Edom is done. But you will see with your own eyes what I will do, and you will say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. You will see me as Lord over this whole world. Your future is still a wonderful one because I love you. You cannot lose my love. So God is saying really to his people in Malachi, if you doubt my love, you just need to know my mercy for you, that you are treated far better than you deserve, that I have not cut you out of my will. I have not rejected you because I promised to keep you. Okay, they doubted God's love, God had chosen to love. Let's just spend a few minutes. What difference does that make to you and me? Here's the question. For you and me, how do you go about assessing if God loves you? If God loves the church in the UK or in the world, how do you make that judgment? Is it on the basis of how you feel today? Is it upon the basis of whether your desires are met? Is it on the basis of whether at this moment in time, life is tough, it is a bad period of your life, there is pain, there is hardship this month, this year, this decade. Do you make the judgment call on whether God loves you and cares for you on that? Because the Lord would say, know that I have loved you. Before the creation of this world, I chose to love you. And therefore I came down in the man Jesus Christ and died for you. And your future is a wonderful one with me in glory. I have loved you. I will always love you. Even if in the circumstances of life now it's grim, I'm still loving you. I still care for you. If you doubt my love for you, look at my mercy upon you. 
of the clearest little verses is 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. You need to know this, says the Lord. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as atoning sacrifice for our sins. That's love. That's a sign that he cares. If you ever doubt it, keep looking there. It's a love that operates despite our performance. Not because of it. That is love. Have you loved us? Yeah, I have. I've come down and died in Jesus Christ to guarantee you paradise for eternity. And I'm working in your life to make sure you make it there. You cannot lose my love. Time is gone. But let me just throw out two things that we'll look at later on uh, in this book. What difference does it make practically? Uh, one is contentment. We thought much about that in Philippians. But um, uh, this struck me in the week. Uh, I read last week uh, a Christian, a female worker working at a, I'll keep it bland, but an Ivy League university in the States. She was talking about the problems amongst young Christian women on the campus, undergraduates. She said, amongst all female undergraduates, here are the three things that put pressure on them relentlessly. One, from parents, never get less than an A. Yeah, but hold on, it's a normal distribution curve, and I'm at an elite university. You can't everyone get it. Anyway, parents, never get less than an A. Two, from their peers, you've got to be hot. You've got to look good. Three, from the culture around them, you've got to be having a good time. See, these three things burrow away all the time. I've got to get an A. I've got to look hot. I've got to be having a great social life. I've got to be having a great time, or I'm a saddo. And she said, therefore, on this university across all undergraduate females, 70% suffer with some kind of eating disorder within their time as an undergraduate, and a similar number are on medication for depression at some point during their undergraduate years. She said, the thing they need to know more than anything else is that their value is not whether they get an A, whether they're hot, whether they're having a good time, because God loves them. And his verdict matters more than anyone else's because it lasts. And he's more worthy than anyone else. That certainty of the love of God for you does transform how we think of ourselves. It produces contentment. And it's got to produce, second little thing that we're done, it's got to produce cheerful obedience as well. And that's worked out in the rest of the book. If you know that God loves you, you can obey him. That's why this one is first. If you, if you can get over doubting God's love, if you can be certain of it for you, that will shape how you obey. That will shape how you live the rest of your lives. I read, um, this is a very sweet story, I'll finish with this. The, uh, I read of the uh, uh, Karkoubi family recently. They're a Syrian, Syrian family from, of refugees. They'd fled Aleppo. They'd gone to Lebanon, and then they were one of the early families, one of the 20,000 that the UK said would take from the Lebanon, and uh, so they got an airplane for the first time in their lives, and uh, mum, dad, three children, aged three, three, and one, they were twins, three, three, one, uh, were taken to, from Aleppo to Lebanon to Aberystwyth in Wales. I'm told that's culture shock. <laughs> and uh, they knew no English, uh, and they've learned English over the last year, and they knew no Welsh, and I think it's still that way. <laughs> but it's very striking, their English is getting there now. And the dad was interviewed, and he said, the, thing, the question, of course, I keep on asking is, why us? Why were we chosen to come here? And no one can give me that. But we are just overwhelmed that we were. Oh, there's still sorts of, all sorts of problems. Financially, we're still pretty broke. 
compared to our life when I was a professional in Aleppo. I'm not allowed to work here, so we're dependent upon grants. That drives me nuts. So I'm trying to help out at the local schools and so on. But we love it here because we know we've been made welcome. When we arrive, there are all these banners. And we've been told in no uncertain terms that we're never going back. No one will make us leave. We're here. We belong here. And so now we want to get on and live life in the UK. The Christian is one who says, look, I've been saved from destruction for a new life. It may well be hard, but what I think about it is so much better than the death that awaited me back there. And so I'm going to crack on. And when I'm uncertain, is this where I want to be? I have a risk with. I think I am loved here. I am welcomed here. I am safe here. So yeah, I'll make my life here. Do you really love me, Lord? Does God love us? He says, I've chosen to love you. That can never change. It's a love in spite of your behavior, not because of it. And I've demonstrated it by coming down and dying in the man, Jesus Christ. You doubt my love, look at my mercy. It'll take you to be with me in glory forever. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we want to ask for your forgiveness at the times when we aggressively challenge you and ask, where is your love? Father, we know you're a God with broad shoulders. We can ask that question of you as a father. We can ask it in times of uncertainty. But a cynical attitude which drifts from you and says, what's the point? Father, forgive us such a thing. And keep us looking back to where you have demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that you do not count our sins against us. You have chosen to love us with a love that cannot fade or end. We praise you for it. Reassure us, strengthen that truth within us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.